The Paul Kaharski Podcast is brought to you by Yazoo Brewing Company, a Nashville original since 2003. Welcome in to a special edition of the Paul Kuharski Podcast, part of the marvelous site known as paulkuharski.com. I am secretly recording at the Doghouse Saloon, one of my favorite bars in Nashville, not far from my radio studio, and also not far from Winner's a uh, sister bar, if you will, winners, sponsors, as you know, Blake Bettingfield's participation in my site. So I'm most grateful to them. And of course, at this fine facility, they serve Yazoo Brew. Yazoo Brew sponsors this very podcast and all of the podcasts at paulkuharski.com. I know you drink them religiously. I do as well. Football season's over. You feel badly part of what you need. To not feel so badly is to drink more Yazoo brew. So I encourage you to shop wisely and to order wisely when you are out drinking. Every year on this day, the Monday after the Super Bowl, I write a piece about how the Titans stack up to the Super Bowl champion. This year I'm not writing that piece because we saw the Titans play the Super Bowl champion two weeks ago in the AFC Championship game. And we've discussed that uh, pretty thoroughly. We'll do a quick review. They need to rush the passer better when the passer is Patrick Mahomes. Uh, San Francisco 49ers did that better in the Super Bowl. They still didn't get the better end of the game, but we saw them rush pretty effectively at times in that game with three men, with four men, Um, and it was part of what gave Mahomes problems for the first three quarters of that game, for the first three and a half quarters of that game. They certainly need um, increased speed uh, defensively, though that pass rush helps your cornerbacks, and you can't can't have, I don't think, three guys with the speed of a Dory Jackson um, as your cornerbacks in a game like that. Uh, But a bit more speed in the defensive backfield would certainly help keep up with uh, Sammy Watkins and Tyreek Hill. you also need speed in the guys that try to keep up with, uh, with Travis Kelsey. You need to be a bit more, a bit less uh, Derrick Henry reliant, um, which I think the Titans can be. You need um, to do better on third and fourth down on both sides of the ball. So the Titans were five for 13 on third and fourth down offensively. And Kansas City was seven for 11 on third and fourth down offensively. Those numbers need to get better for the Titans on offense and worse for the Chiefs on defense, uh, better for the Titans on defense, um, for the Titans to be able to get past Kansas City. And then you need the key scenario of the game to go more in your favor. And for the Titans, the key scenario in the game, as we've covered, um, was before halftime. The Titans got the ball with a three-point lead with 4.03 remaining before halftime, and they had a very unfortunate three and out before the half. That led to the Chiefs getting the ball back and then to a a run that's going to be on Patrick Mahomes' career highlight reel, a 27-yard scramble that took him to the left sideline and then allowed him to cut back. Derek Roberson missed a, a diving attempt at his ankles 
Um, Rashawn Evans missed uh, and, and got faked out by a little shimmy. Tremaine Brock missed twice at the five-yard line and at the one-yard line, foolishly trying to punch the ball out both times, far more concerned with trying to create a turnover than with trying to tackle a guy before halftime and create a, a field goal scenario instead of allowing a touchdown. And Hooker went flying by and barely grazed the shoulder of Patrick Mahomes as if he was afraid of hitting a running quarterback who is just like any other running player at that time. That allowed uh, Mahomes to get into the end zone and allowed the Chiefs to have a halftime lead and was the beginning of the end for the Titans in a game against the Super Bowl champs. Um, so we know how the Titans measure up to the Chiefs. I asked Mike Vrabel the day after that game when the Titans cleaned out their locker if they were going to kind of keep the Chiefs in mind as they went about their offseason, if the Chiefs were a target for them. He gave very much a non-answer to that question, which really wasn't surprising because the Titans, uh, well b before Mike Vrabel, refused to, to say that they were building to target the, the Colts or the Texans, and they should have been targeting the um, the Colts at that time with Andrew Luck, a team that they couldn't get past. I don't see what the damage would have been to say, hey, there's a team at the top of our division that we have to get past to win the division. And in order to win the division, we need clearly, you know, elements that we need to beat everybody, but certainly elements we need to beat the Colts. We need to hit Andrew Luck more and faster. We need to cover his receivers better, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't say that about the Colts, and they certainly didn't head into this offseason saying that about uh, the Texans, their division champ that they have to vault, um, or about the Chiefs, the AFC champion, who um, they'll need to unseat uh, if they're getting to the Super Bowl in uh, the 2020 season. Lost during this um, AFC championship run this season, and um, in the bid the Titans made to go to the Super Bowl this year was the 20th anniversary of the Titans' one trip to the Super Bowl. Um, and that was the Titans, sorry, the anniversary of, of their one trip to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 34, a very, very memorable time for this franchise. And I didn't get a chance really to look back at it much. Um, I have a, a friend still at the Tennessean. I know that's hard to believe based on my uh, current standing with the Tennessean. But uh, he or she was kind enough to forward to me today the piece that I wrote um, on deadline that night for the Tennessean as the beat guy. Now, I'm going to tell you some insider secrets about how deadline writing works for it worked in, in uh, January of 2000. For a game like that, the magnitude of that, you have to have some B copy. Um, we'd call it B roll in, in TV. You have to have some B copy. And so I had sections of the story that were going to be part of the story, win or lose. And I might have had sections of the story written that were for, uh, for a win 
or for a loss sectioned off, kind of like puzzle pieces that would slide in depending on the result. Um, but I intentionally, I got this story today and I did not look at it much beyond the very top. And I don't know if this will work or fail, but I thought maybe, unless you're driving, um, and even if you're driving and uh, you're in the standstill traffic, you could kind of close your eyes um, and go back in time with me 20 years and see if this does anything for you. And I'm going to see if it does anything for me. So we'll give it a shot, all right? This is like a book on tape, an article on tape in the voice of the author. Big headline was, Oh, So Close. Subheadline, Cliffhanger Ends Great Game, Great Season by Paul Kuharski, sports writer, Dateline, Atlanta. Their road to Super Bowl 34 was long and winding, navigated with equal parts grit and grace. It was almost enough, but the Tennessee Titans' remarkable second-half comeback left them one yard short of forcing overtime last night in front of 72,625 people at the Georgia Dome. The final image of a thrilling, gut-wrenching game will forever be receiver Kevin Dyson stretching unsuccessfully for the goal line after being taken down by Rams linebacker Mike Jones on the final play of a 23-16 St. Louis victory. They gave us all we could handle. It was a fight to the finish. One of the best games I've ever played in, said Rams wide receiver Isaac Bruce, who caught the 73-yard touchdown pass with one minute, 54 seconds remaining that provided the winning margin. I'm proud to be a part of this. As it ended, some Rams ran aimlessly, joyfully using their last ounces of energy. Others, already empty, fell to the turf, feeling the silver glitter from the Georgia Dome sky fall on their faces. The Titans stood stunned, hands on hips, tears welling up, their frozen stares aimed at the spot where Dyson was marked down. They prayed maybe just for a second that replay officials might consider a review, but realized quickly the play had been judged correctly. Hopefully the Titans will be judged correctly as well as a surprising team that made a huge leap in its first settled season and fought back from a 16-0 deficit to pull even late in the game they eventually controlled. But the turnabout came too late and St. Louis quarterback Kurt Warner collected the MVP award. He threw for a Super Bowl record 414 yards and two touchdowns, completing his own Cinderella story. Kurt had a marvelous game, Titans coach Jeff Fisher said. He took a pounding. He was hit and hit and hit, but kept playing and made the plays to win the game. What you saw was no fluke on our part or on Tennessee's part, Rams coach Dick Vermeil said. They deserve a lot of credit, but we're the world champions. I think we showed America what the Super Bowl is all about. After three miserable nomadic years as lame ducks in Houston in 1996, commuters to Memphis in 1997, and visitors at Vanderbilt in 1998, a transformation into the Titans was expected to give the Titans franchise a boost. No one predicted it would help catapult the team to an AFC championship and a Super Bowl appearance. Once the Titans arrived, they prepared with diligence and universally embraced the week of hype as few teams preceding them had. The Titans craved the Lombardi Trophy, wanting desperately to win their eighth game in a row and earn the tall, slender silverware 
and the gaudy rings that come with a world championship. But they slowly left the turf with no choice but to accept their spots as runner-ups in a classic tension-filled game. The ache from how closely they came on the final play will undoubtedly last a long time. Yet long before kickoff, they had turned Music City into a titan town. Warner tore them apart in the first half as the Rams' offense moved up and down the field with relative ease, stalling only as it neared the end zone. By the third quarter, the Rams had built their lead to 16-0 and looked to be a lock. Tennessee managed to change the current, stringing together two drives built just as most of its success was this season. With a heavy dose of running back Eddie George, who wound up with 95 yards on 28 carries, and both of his team's touchdowns, mar touchdowns marvelous, marvelous improvisation by slippery quarterback Steve McNair, and a mix of short rhythmic passing. But on the Rams' first play from scrimmage after El Del Greco's field goal evened the game at 16-16, Bruce came back to Warner's pass up the right sideline, leaving cornerback Denard Walker behind, breaking an attempted tackle by free safety Anthony Dorsett and sprinting to the end zone. The Titans then moved 78 yards in 1 minute and 42 seconds. They lined up at the Rams' 10 for their last chance. McNair hit Dyson with a quick slant pass, but Jones closed and tackled, and the game was over. I realized as soon as I stretched out, I didn't get the point of the ball to the goal line, Dyson said. It's going to be something tough to deal with, George said. Something I can grow on, a learning experience. I'm going to take the best out of this. I'm not going to be down. It is going to be tough, but we're going to work hard, and the guys are definitely going to be focused. Fisher said his work to get his team to Tampa Bay for the Super Bowl next January would begin immediately. I believe we've got the talent to come back, he said. I'm going to start tomorrow on the road back. That's all I know. The thing about that Super Bowl, January 30th, 2000, was the difference media-wise for somebody like me was the deadline. You see a lot, a lot of video now of what the setup is like downstairs and guys in their booths and doing interviews and then, then guys at their lockers. And um, the lack of deadlines because you're writing for internet sites allows you, affords you time to go down there and, and dig in with some people and get some real sights and sounds from the post game, win or lose, from, from the people that you cover. Um, and to, to get more in-depth, which I think I did, uh, that story was, wasn't bad, given the constraints. It's the first time I've read it in years and years. Um, but when I covered the Colts uh, in the Super Bowl that they lost to New Orleans for ESPN, I had more time downstairs, and today I would have way more time downstairs. For this story, I saw no one really downstairs. I was probably fed a couple of those quotes from teammates at the Tennessean. I probably got a few myself. But I remember that if I saw, well, I didn't see Wycheck, who was one of my key guys. I probably saw George briefly, um, Fisher briefly. The day after, there was a bit of reaction to be garnered at the hotel. And then 
whenever the parade was, I think it was, it was Tuesday, I missed it. I was flying to Hawaii for the Pro Bowl. So um, it's just interesting to me, and I don't know how interested you are in how the sausage is made and in the process, but 20 years ago, a, a beat rider on deadline um, and for the logistics of getting all the way downstairs at a place like the Georgia Dome or any place now, um, very difficult and a lot of sprinting involved. This day and age, you can marinate a little bit down there, uh, get a little bit more of a sense of feel, um, see guys a little bit more, a lot a bit more, and get upstairs with a little bit more time to think about what you saw and uh, write about it in a little bit of a different way. So I hope that took you back a little bit. Want to talk a little bit about Radio Row in Miami, where I was left lucky enough to be yet again for 104.5 The Zone and the Midday 180, and then for paulkuharski.com for the Hall of Fame um, selection committee meeting. Um, here are Titans who were there. Uh, on Radio Row, um, I know Derek Henry was there a lot. We saw a ton of him. I'll be talking about him a little bit more. Um, also, uh, former Titan Jason McCourty was there, and we visited with him. Former Titan Avery Williamson was there. Uh, we saw him representing the Jets some. Former Titan Eddie George was there. He's a regular on our show, and we obviously visited with him. Um, Henry was there. We couldn't get near him in terms of a radio interview. Tannehill, I don't know if he made Radio Row. He was obviously there to collect his Comeback Player of the Year trophy Saturday night at the awards. Ben Jones was there Saturday night as he was a candidate for the um, Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, which he did not win. Rashawn Evans was there on Friday. I saw him and chatted with him for a while, and I know he was on 3HL. Um, we didn't have time to, to ask him to fit him in because Kevin Byard um, was there and was kind enough to join us for what I thought was a good interview, and we were the only interview he did. He came into Radio Row for Midday 180, which was very cool. Kenny Vaccaro, I don't know if he was around on Friday. I saw that he did some stuff on Saturday. Uh, here's the rant one of my producers here was looking for. These guys, and it's not on the guys, it's on their handlers. But if you've got Derrick Henry and you're taking him on tour as his contract is about to expire and he's campaigning, and he's saying a bit more than he said all year. And there are some people in that room who have dealt with him all year, who have dealt with him all four of his NFL years. I think it's a disgrace that your handlers and you're walking him around as he represents Gatorade and FedEx and whoever else, and you take him strictly to all the big stages and completely ignore the people who have dealt with him on a day-to-day -day basis dealt with him on pissed off days where he didn't have much to say, uh, written about him, uh, quite frankly, before he kicked things in gear in the middle of his third season, um, wrote about him on draft day and all of that stuff. And so quite frankly, it's bullshit when you big time walk around him and take him to all of the big places. I have no problem with that. And certainly he wants to maximize and be seen on Good Morning Football and Dan Patrick and the Rick Eisen Show, uh, uh, Rich Eisen Show and all of those places. And he should be. But somewhere on his schedule, carve out a damn 10 minutes to take him on his show, 
hometown. And if that sounds like me, little small time guy from the home market crying, so be it. I'm the little time guy from the hometown market crying. But the guy hasn't said hardly a damn thing in his whole time here. And now he's finally ready to go out and say that his floor for contract numbers is Zeke Elliott. And he's saying it to Rich Eisen and I can't get him to comment on that on my show in Nashville, which has covered him every day for four years on the Midday 180. I think that's bullshit. And I think these handlers just are such big timers. And when I walk with him and say, Derek, you have to have your handlers. I'm not complaining to you. I'm complaining to your handlers. And you're saying, I'm just doing what they tell me. Well, you're the boss of them. So I'm going to have a completely different approach next year in terms of how I try to reach out to these handlers. But these guys don't even know at the end of their season who they're working for come Radio Row or if they're working for them. Um, there's got to be a better way. And there's got to be 10 minutes for the hometown guy. And I'm not just talking Derrick Henry for me. I'm talking, you know, whatever player for his hometown team. But I think uh, there, there's got to be some degree of respect for the hometown guy on that thing. Even Jim Wyatt was fighting to get, you know, a minute with Derrick Henry on camera. And Jim Wyatt had been at the Pro Bowl with Derrick Henry. So let's get on to the big news out of Derrick Henry down there. I thought he grew increasingly comfortable in the clips that I saw of him interviewing with others. He gave a stiff arm to Paul Pabst, I think, on the Dan Patrick show, one of the Danettes. He hit just the right balance of uh, giving the guy a sense of what it's like to get stiff-armed and not murdering him. So it was very nice, I thought. But Rick Eisen, Rich Eisen, I keep calling him Rick, did a good job of getting Derrick Henry to repeat that Zeke Elliott's contract is the floor. Here's that audio. You're a free agent, sir, correct? Yes, sir. What, how are you approaching this? You're fired uh, up? You're excited? You want to stay? What do you got for me? Oh, uh, I definitely want to stay. Okay. Um, I mean, it's my first time being a free agent. Um, and, um, yeah, just taking one day at a time and then, you know, see what happens. Because, I mean, eventually, I mean, something's going to happen, so ain't no reason to rush in it. Right. You know, just, just let it play out. Um, get my agent, talk to the team, and then see how, see how it goes from there. So I'm new to this, so. Okay. Um, is Zeke numbers the floor? Is that the floor? Zeke numbers is the floor. I mean, that's it, right? I mean, he's the guy. So uh, do you have a place in Cabo that you can go to as well to pull the Zeke maneuver <laughs> or no? Actually, no? It was, uh, actually, it was at a Pro Bowl. And got, we, we, we went out to eat and we're talking and catching up. So, Ah, yeah. this past Pro Bowl. This past Pro Bowl, yeah. Uh, well, what'd you, what'd you talk about at dinner? Talk Derek? about football, talk about life. You know, you know, just catching up, all those great things. Strategy, a little strategy. Well, again, he, he had a contract. You have, you are a free agent. I mean, uh -huh. so you, you can pretty much uh, dictate in a way uh, what you would like to have happen. And um, so you will test the market, or is it a way that Tennessee could prevent that from happening? That's what you're saying. I mean, I hope they prevent it from happening. I mean, I love, Tennessee, love to stay in Tennessee and, um, and then see what happens, though. I mean, um, it's all, I mean... Got to talk to my agent, work things out with them, and, you know. And so he's, he's, he spent some time with Ezekiel Elliott, got some contract flavoring. That contract he's talking about is a six-year, $90 million contract. 
$7.5 million signing bonus. That's not the most uh, important number there. It's $50 million plus a little guaranteed and an average of $15 million a season. That is a gigantic number. And I know it feels like he is so the Titans' identity that he should be paid really whatever he wants, a fill-in-the-blank contract. But you can't pay him on what he did. You have to pay him on what he'll do. And that's why it's dangerous. And that's why, to me, a franchise or a transition tag is the safer way to go. You can construct the contract that you can get out of it. Um, and, and to me, that's another thing you would need to do here. But I'm scared to death of big money contracts for running backs. And um, I think you, you've got to be weary. And a lot of people out there are saying, pay him whatever he wants. Pay him Ezekiel Elliott money. He deserves Ezekiel Elliott money. Um, the, the one thing, and people are tired of hearing this from me, they've both played four seasons in the league. They've both played four seasons in the league. Derrick Henry has caught 57 passes for 578 yards. Ezekiel Elliott has caught 189 passes for 1,619 yards. That's pretty big. That is really big. Ezekiel Elliott has a potential out after 2023, or in 2023, excuse me, after, um, after four years can get out for $50 million and leave behind $6.7 million dead cap. That sounds all right to me, so maybe you could do something like that. I still think, tag him and wait. The elite performance is there. It's funny. Derrick Henry's had uh, 16, 17, 18 this year. I'm going to give him a whole season because he won the rushing championship. So 18 games. And then last year, four games. So he's had 22 games of elite performance. Now, Ryan Tannehill had 10 games of elite performance. So he's had a little bit more than twice as much. Everybody seems concerned that you don't have enough evidence on the one and that you have significantly more evidence on the other. But if you look at percentage of time played, Ryan Tannehill has been elite in virtually all of his time played. It dropped off in the playoffs when they were leaning more heavily on Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry, that's 22 out of four years. And you're going to say, well, he would have been elite if they were giving him the ball. I say they would have been giving him the ball if he was elite. Uh, Derrick Henry himself, last year, in the 2018 season, through the first eight, 9, 10, 11 games was calling himself trash. So, look, I'm completely sold on Derrick Henry. I'm just not completely sold on paying him six years, $90 million going forward with $50 million guaranteed. There's an easy way not to do that. It's by franchise tagging him or um, transition tagging him. And I think uh, that, to me, is, is the route to go with him, there's going to be tons and tons and tons of contract talk. Between now and the time he's tagged, 
or that we hear of a new deal. Also, there was one note out that, that Chris Mortensen said that Ryan Tannehill's not going anywhere, uh, and some people treated this as a real news development. Show me the person that knows anything about the Titans that thought Ryan Tannehill was going anywhere. If you give me a, a news note that he's going somewhere, that's big news. Just because some big NFL reporter says he's not going anywhere, that's not news. Nobody's expecting that he's going anywhere. Your affection for a national reporter commenting on a local story that's been known for some time bewilders me. All right, a final thought as we go. Uh, part of the Super Bowl pregame on TV on Fox's broadcast, um, and I think it led into the, to the young man commercial with him running, um, giving up the football, getting it back in all sorts of ways to the point where then they had him running into the stadium and delivering the football to the uh, official, which was a terrific, terrific NFL advertisement. Uh, every bit as good as last year's uh, 100th season commercial with all the great players in it, and there were a lot of great players in this one. But leading into that, we saw female ownership in the NFL um, represented and talking. I don't remember what they're talking about. Ted here reminds me it was just kind of about the league. He's nodding. Um, and it was, it was Norma Hunt, Martha Ford, Patricia Rooney and Virginia McCaskey and once again this was a situation where in a conversation about or representation of female ownership in the league Amy Adams Strunk was completely invisible now out of these others um, I mean I don't think Norma Hunt I, I, I could be totally wrong here I haven't invested these but we know Norma Hunt's husband, uh, or son, sorry, is very involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the Chiefs. Uh, Patricia Rooney uh, has a, a, a son. Uh, Virginia McCaskey may be doing this. Martha Ford, I think, is doing this. But Amy Adams Strunk is controlling owner of the Tennessee Titans. And she's never represented in these things, which... You know, I think a lot of you who complain about the lack of Titans representation in some of these things tend to be babies on occasion. Here's one that strikes me as a, as a reasonable thing to complain about. Now, two years ago at an owner's meeting, Roger Goodell's wife hosted a panel, and it was called uh, the Fab Four. And she had McCaskey and Rooney and Hunt and Ford and they talked about their lifetime of being involved in football. And I can understand that. I mean, they've had lifetimes of being involved in football. They're all quite a bit older than Amy Adams Strunk. And they've been in football their entire lives. Amy Adams Strunk was involved in, uh, was in football, so to speak, as her dad was an owner. But then she was not particularly close to the team for a, for a long segment there as she had an adult life. Um, where she may have been involved in KSA Industries and she may have been around the team some, but she was not in any day-to-day uh, -day way. And she wasn't even the, the, the first plan for taking over after her dad died. Her brother-in-law had to fail at it miserably before she was kind of called on 
to head up the operation. She's done a, a fantastic job since then. But I don't think anyone would argue that she's been as close uh, to, to the Oilers slash Titans as Norma Hunt has been to the Chiefs, as Patricia Rooney has been to the Steelers, as Virginia McCaskey has been to the Bears, or as Martha Ford has been to the Lions. So this Fab Four panel was so well-received that the NFL Films then did a one-hour piece called The Lifetime of Sundays with the Four. And so they've become the standard bearers for, for female um, owners. And so the league likes it, and the, the league sticks with it, and then Fox grabs onto it. But I think you could argue it's an oversight there to, to simply ignore... Um, ignore Amy Adams Strunk in that environment. I'd be insulted if I were her. I'd be insulted if I was a fan of the Titans. Uh, I'd also be insulted. Uh, David Reed, uh, our producer on the Midday 180, pointed out that in that commercial with the little boy uh, running with the football, the kid in a Titans jersey is in an old Titans jersey. And the Titans have been wearing their new jerseys now for two years. And I know that stuff like that drives you crazy. And the longer stuff like that sticks around, like how long do they have to be in the New Jersey's before the league catches up? Three years? Four years? Yeah. If Dallas friggin' tweaked the, the trim on the bottom of uh, their jerseys, you could be sure it would friggin' be changed in time for the kid to have a jersey that was correct in this commercial. And so I'm sympathetic with you on something like that. I think it's ridiculous. I didn't mean to grab something that we'll talk about on the Midday 180. It just fit in here to me with the Amy Adams strunk thing. Get yourself some Yazoo Brew. I appreciate them sponsoring this. I appreciate the, the crew of Vocal Media, which produces these podcasts, popping through Nashville. Gentlemen, uh, it's a pleasure to see you here. I hope you haven't blown this because I can't uh, re-record this in such a stylistic fashion with my beautiful reading of my game story from January 31st, 2000. I know you were all moved to tears by that. And uh, to everyone out there, if you're a member of the site, I appreciate you. If you're not a member of the site, I feel like you're freeloading listening to this excellent content without paying for the rest. My Hall of Fame column is up at the site. Lots of good Titan stuff to come. Developments probably coming this week with regard to the defensive coordinator position. You're going to want to read what I have to say about that. You're going to want to be a part of the um, Periscope and Facebook Live that I will have quickly after that for members only. Jump on board membership page at paulkuherski.com. We'll walk you through it. It's very easy. It's very inexpensive. Don't be a cheapskate or I'll come and get you. You've been listening to the Paul Kuharski podcast at paulkuharski.com. Rate, subscribe, do all those other things. And be on the lookout. My other podcast, Elsewhere, brought to you by 104.5 The Zone, comes out of playoff hibernation on Tuesday, February 4th. The Paul Kuharski podcast is a joint production of paulkuharski.com and Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com. Now.